My name is Caleb Kruberoy, and this is Nightbeat. Tonight, an update on coronavirus as Rutgers develops a saliva test for the virus. And also, interviews honoring the beloved Ruth B. Mandel, one of the founders of the Center for American Women in Politics. But for now, here is your host, Joey Block. Welcome to Nightbeat. I'm Joey Block. The big news this week, Middlesex County is using a first-of-its-kind Rutgers-designed saliva test at its COVID-19 testing site. We'll be talking about that in just a moment, but right now I want to talk about and break down the latest happening with the coronavirus at Rutgers and around the world. The current count as of 7.30 p.m., over 2 million cases across the globe, more than 639 cases nationwide, over 14,600 deaths, more than 71,000 coronavirus infections in New Jersey, and over 3,100 fatalities, as well as 493 cases right here in New Brunswick. The effect of the coronavirus has taken shape on our own campus. Career and Exploration Services is hosting a virtual town hall on Friday to address concerns students have about entering the job market during this time. WRSU News reporter Chris Sakonis will be bringing us the latest in how students can look for jobs in this time of uncertainty. Rutgers also suffered a non-COVID-19 relayed loss this weekend when former Eagleton Institute of Politics director Ruth B. Mandel died due to ovarian cancer. Mandel passed away at the age of 81 and is survived by her daughter, who is the president of Williams College, her husband, son-in-law, grandchildren, as well as her ex and dear friend, Barrett Mandel. Condolences have been pouring in, including one from Governor Murphy at his press briefing on Monday. Eagleton Director John F. Farmer and Center Center for American Women and Politics, Debbie Walsh, are remembering what they will miss most about her. Our own Tommy Waters will have the exclusive later in the hour. Across the Atlantic, the Tour de France has been postponed until August 29th. The World Cycling Governing Body, UCI, made the announcement today amid the COVID-19 pandemic. The race is set to take place between August 29th and September 20th. Today, President Trump said at a White House press briefing that the U.S. has passed its peak of new cases for coronavirus. The White House task force is set to release guidelines for reopening tomorrow. At a press conference today, Governor Murphy said the state is fourth in line among those doing the most testing. He said we're only behind states with higher populations. He also praised Rutgers for creating the saliva test currently being used at the Middlesex County testing site in Edison. He also said that the White House called to congratulate the state on the breakthrough. Over the course of the hour, we'll be covering all the angles of the coronavirus from how it's impacting Rutgers, as well as how it's affecting the local community. We'll be talking about this and much more throughout the hour, but first, as the government tries to slow the spread of the coronavirus in New Jersey, the cases continue to rise. Here at Rutgers, a new test has been created and is being implemented at the Middlesex County testing site in Edison. The saliva test is the first in the nation and is right now only accessible at the New Jersey Convention Center location. WRSU News reporter Hannah Varkey has more on that for us. This week, a saliva test for COVID-19 developed by the Rutgers University Cell and DNA Repository, or RUCDR, has been approved by the FDA. Founder of RUCDR, Dr. J.A. Tischfield, tells us more. RUCDR Infinite Biologics um, is part of the Human Genetics Institute of New Jersey, um, which is located on the Bush campus. And I'm director of the institute and CEO and uh, scientific director of RUCDR. So today, the RUCDR saliva test for the SARS coronavirus has been approved by the FDA. So yes. what, what are your thoughts on this? There have been 10 approvals so far. This is the first approval using saliva. 
and also we do we were also approved for throat swabs which is the conventional way of testing it was a tremendous amount of work uh getting this approved by the fda and uh most of that work was done uh by the staff in rucdr and uh, the chief operating officer andrew brooks who's also a professor in the department of genetics um, this will enable this the saliva test will enable the collection of samples for testing in places where you can't get a medical professional in to do a throat swab so for example these uh, saliva tests excuse me can be done by uh, telemedicine people can be sent the kits and uh, a nurse or a physician's assistant can inform them um, over either the phone or better yet uh, with a direct computer connection on how to fill the tube, sterilize it and return it uh, for testing. Um, it's much easier than having um, what they call an NP, a nasopharyngeal swab um, put in your nose and down your throat a little bit. Um, and it's a lot less uh, invasive. And some people think the NP2 uh, test is painful. Um, so has Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital and other hospitals in New Jersey started using this test? Yeah, um, we've been um, doing both kinds of tests, swab, uh, NP swabs, that stands for nasopharyngeal, just so you know. Uh, everybody calls them NP swabs. We've been doing NP swabs and saliva. Uh, one of the uh, things we did very early is, you, as you may imagine, first responders were very concerned about becoming infected. So we've been testing first responders and other people and those sort of healthcare workers um, to uh, assure them uh, that they either uh, hopefully don't have uh, the virus, or if they do, they can go into quarantine and not spread it to patients and other uh, healthcare workers. So that was the first thing we did. And at this point in time, the test is being offered through many venues um, in New Jersey and even elsewhere. Um, we have a uh, relationship with a uh, clinical provider, Accurate Diagnostics. It's in the uh, press release. And um, for example, they provide the physicians who uh, are responsible for taking the samples, and then the samples are shipped to us for testing. We don't have a physician staff directly, so we rely on physicians elsewhere. We rely on physicians at Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital and other hospitals. Okay, so um, to the test that you mentioned, they have the ability to test thousands of samples daily. So yes. what techniques are involved in making like millions of copies of the coronavirus RNA for the test? Well, okay, good question. Um, RUCDR was not in the business of doing clinical testing a month ago. But RUCDR is a contract research organization uh, sponsored by Rutgers um, that uh, mostly uh, conducted genetic studies for the government, for the National Institutes of Health, and uh, some uh, pharmaceutical companies and other types of uh, biotech companies. So uh, when the COVID uh, pandemic broke out, um, we uh, decided that the skills and the robotic automation, which is very key here, um, that we had developed for genetic testing uh, could be adapted to COVID testing. So um, 
some of the instruments, some of the robots that we use to extract nucleic acids, that is DNA, RNA, now extract RNA from um, the virus if it's present. And this RNA in the laboratory is converted to DNA uh, by a process known as reverse transcription. Um, the name is not critical. Uh, and then the DNA is tested by a process called quantitative PCR, polymerase chain reaction. And um, that is a, a technique uh, that maybe about 25 years ago came into being, and the guy who uh, developed it won a Nobel Prize for it. And it allows you to take one copy or however many copies you have of a gene and amplify that by producing millions of copies from that one copy. It's like a giant Xerox machine, giant copy machine. Okay, so... Or, although, um, I, I must say it's very small, excuse me. <laughs> yeah. It's all very small. It sounds very cool, though. Um, so it is what cool. Is, what is it about genetics and the genetic mechanisms that give you useful perspective on science and research, and in this case, the coronavirus research? Well, uh, we're not doing research on coronavirus. We're doing clinical testing, although... Uh, we are part of several research studies um, where healthcare workers uh, are being followed for a period of um, six months and being tested every two weeks to see um, what their exposure is and whether and how many of them are exposed and things like that. That's a very important study, obviously, for healthcare workers. So we are doing some corona research, but it's in, in, the, in the form of testing subject samples. I've always been doing genetics all my life. I don't know how to do anything else, perhaps. Um, and um, genetics has a beauty to it. Um, it's one area of biological science where everything is quantitative. You get one copy from your mom, one copy from your dad of a gene, and sometimes things happen, and all of those things can be explained. And although when I started in genetics, none of those things had been explained. But uh, over the last, believe it or not, half century that I've been doing this, I've been doing this half century. Um, uh, much of that has come has been explained, and that's very satisfying, having played a very small role in that. And there's a lot more to be explained for, for students who want to study genetics. What do you look forward to with RUCDR and more scientific research and testing in the upcoming weeks? Well, I, uh, when hopefully when COVID is over, and I'm sure none of us, uh, everyone wants that day to come very quickly, yeah. Uh, we'll go back to what we were doing before COVID. And um, that is working with the government. We are the uh, National Institute of Mental Health Genetics Center, and we process all the genetic studies worldwide for them that are funded by the federal government to learn about the genetic underpinnings of very common diseases like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, autism, Tourette disorder, uh, just to name a few. We also work a lot with alcoholism and drug addiction, and uh, we're doing uh, some studies on the development of children and their liability toward uh, drug abuse and other factors. So we'll go back to that. No shortage of work. Okay. Um, so the last question I had for you is, do you have any advice or anything you'd like to share with us Rutgers students? Uh, yes, I guess. Um, it's very, very frustrating to do research. And most people 
don't have the patience to do research. Uh, even more important than being reasonably smart, um, having perseverance and patience is how you succeed in research. And basically, when I'm looking for students who I think will have a career in genetics or a related um, field, um, I look for students who I think will stick it out. Sometimes discoveries come quickly, but that's rare. Most of the time, it takes years and years. I have one project that we've been working on for 30 years, and we still haven't solved it. So <laughs> that's a long time. We will eventually solve it. Yeah, I hope so. Me too. Coming up next, we'll be getting some insight into how the members of the Eagleton Institute of Politics are dealing with the loss of former director Ruth M. Mandel. That's all coming your way right here on Nightbeat. Welcome back to Nightbeat. I'm Joey Block. In the midst of the global pandemic, former Eagleton Institute of Politics director Ruth M. Mandel has passed away. Her legacy spans decades with many accolades that fill her resume. WRSU News reporter Tommy Waters caught up with Eagleton director John F. Farmer to talk about Mandel's life. Take a listen. First, let me just extend my condolences uh, for Professor Mandel. Her loss truly shocked us all, and I hope you were doing well in this time. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, and it's certainly... um... Um, obviously, it's a difficult time for everyone right now, and um, and the news of Ruth's passing has compounded uh, the difficulty um, that we're all feeling and compounded the feeling of isolation that so many people are experiencing um, at Eagleton, not being able to sort of come together uh, to mourn her passing. Um, we're going to do something virtually, um, but, you know, it won't be the same. Could you please go into a little bit of who she was and what she meant to you? Sure. So Ruth's, uh, Ruth's resume is obviously stellar. I mean, she, her life story is, is, a, is a real um, a saga of our times. She was uh, an infant when, um, uh, when the Nazis uh, took over Austria and um, her parents um, uh, decided to leave her native Vienna and they boarded a ship called the St. Louis uh, in search of a, a, a new life in, in America. And uh, that ship was turned away at, uh, at the Port of New York um, and was turned away at several other stops in the New World, including uh, Cuba, ultimately had to return to Europe. Um, and tragically, for, for most of the passengers on that, on that ship, when they got to Europe, they, um, uh, they uh, decided, or it was decided for them, I think, whether they would settle in Belgium or um, um, or the Netherlands or the UK, and fortunately for Ruth and her parents, they were able to settle in the United Kingdom, uh, and spent and she spent uh, her early years uh, during World War II uh, in England and and had vague memories of of the um, uh, the the air raid sirens that would go off and the um, and the, the the fear that existed in, in the UK at the time. Her father was drafted into the British Army and served. Uh, and then when the war was over, uh, her parents decided to uh, resume their dream of coming to the U.S. and, and made, it, made their way over here. Um, and she always viewed her life as a gift and as a piece of tremendous good fortune. And she sort of dedicated her life uh, to the realization that, that, that her life was, in fact, a gift and that she... Uh, she do everything she can in service to others to make sure that something with the Holocaust would never happen again. So um, she gained prominence early on as a literary scholar. I think she wrote her PhD thesis on the works of Herman Melville. Um, but then she really um, came into prominence as a founding uh, at Rutgers as a founding uh, member of the, um, the Center on American Women and Politics, which is um, at Eagleton. Uh, and which 50 years later, roughly 50 years after its founding, remains sort of the go-to uh, uh, center in, in the country on uh, issues of uh, women's involvement in politics. <clears throat> um, she, um, 
uh, was the director of that center uh, for a number of years, I think uh, maybe 20 years until she was appointed the director of Eagleton itself um, 25 years ago and served as Eagleton's steward for nearly a quarter century. She stepped down last summer um, after 24 years at the helm. Um, and in addition to activities at Rutgers where she was a really indispensable part of the university's uh, community of scholars. Uh, she was also a founding board member of the National Holocaust Museum in Washington. In fact, there's a photo of her uh, at, in the Holocaust Museum as, a, as an infant aboard that ill-fated ship to St. Louis. Um, really her, uh, given Eagleton's mission of fostering um, democratic values and, and, uh, and exalting public service, um, that's the best antidote to the kind of hate that drove her parents out of Europe. Mm. Um, and she viewed it that way and really dedicated her life to, uh, to those ideals. Uh, on a personal level, she was a um, uh, self-described Jewish mother. And she, <laughs> uh, she got, every, you know, basically the, what strikes me about her is that, is that every life to her mattered. You know, she grew up in a time when individual lives were, were treated as if they were completely dispensable, um, particularly Jewish lives in Europe. And, and she, in the way that she, in the work that she did, in the way she approached people, uh, was the antidote to that. To her, every life mattered. I mean, she would get uh, into the details of, of what you were up to and what your plans were and, you know, what, in my case, you know, what you're writing, what are you teaching, what are you up to? Uh, to the point where at one point I said to her, Ruth, you know, don't be more interested in my life than I am. Um, <laughs> And she was, um, you know, she was a um, remarkable person in the sense that um, every, everyone she came across mattered to her. She was curious about what people were doing and thinking. Um, people interested her, interested her tremendously. And um, when you take her life as a whole, I think the thing that, that I take away from it is that commitment to the, the values of individual lives. Uh, and to her, that was the best antidote. Uh, to the hatred that drove her parents from Europe um, and the best affirmation of the values that matter. Going off of you, you were mentioning how uh, like some personal things about her, any yeah. fond memories you share about her, you know, anything, any uh, interesting stories or something along those lines? Well, when she, you know, when, when, when I, when I uh, left my, uh, when I left being general counsel of Rutgers uh, by mutual agreement at the end of my, at the end of my dean's contract, I, I was the dean of the law school. And then we, we, when Rutgers had its issues with athletics and with merging uh, with medical schools and UMDNJ, um, they asked me to step in and be general counsel, which I agreed to do. I agreed to finish my dean's contract mm -hmm. as general counsel. But when I was, was leaving that post, um, she offered me the, an office at Eagleton, which seemed like a really, uh, a really good fit. And so I really got to know her in the last few years. And um, we would have regular lunches at various diners up and down Route 1, uh, which turned into uh, her proselytizing me to be her successor. And, uh, mm. and um, so we, uh, we would sit for hours and, and she would, I would tell her all the reasons, you know, why I didn't think I was a good fit to run Eagleton. And she would <laughs> tell me all the reasons why I was perfect. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, events, as it turned out, events sort of overtook us. But, uh, but I have many fond memories of, of her sipping tea and, and, um, and our having uh, uh, really funny dialogues about whatever was going on in politics. And, and, um, uh, and, and her, um, her I, I would say, her one, um, and I know you guys, I think you're going to talk to Debbie Walsh as well, but her one um, really unrealized dream that we, was a woman being elected president of the United States. And um, when Hillary uh, lost in 2016, it was a very hard blow for her um, to take. And, and um, uh, we had lunch shortly after that. And, and she said, but you know what? Um, this is gonna inspire more women than ever to get involved in politics. So, um, so she had this rebound um, from that defeat to say that it made the eventual election of uh, a woman president and election of women to higher office inevitable. Um, so it that that sort of shows you her uh, her ebullient spirit that she would come back from uh, you know a, a pretty for her um, devastating blow to realize that it actually was 
in the long run, probably a positive. Now you were mentioning how you, she was training to, for you to be her successor during that process. Was it like nervous knowing you'd have to take over eventually? Like what, what was your mind going through as she's training you to do this? Well, it wasn't really a matter of training. It was a matter of recruiting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, my, uh, I had, uh, when I left, I had started a, um, a center, uh, the Miller Center for Community Protection and Resilience and uh, doing work that I have been involved with my whole career in, in terms of, uh, of, of, you know, helping uh, police and communities um, in Europe and in the U.S. Uh, to get along better and to establish bridges of communication. Um, it's an area that's interested in me since I was attorney general back in the 1990s. And uh, so I was really focused on, on that work mm. and, and on, and on um, uh, you know, teaching at the law school. And, and so my plate was pretty full and I, I have, um, you know, I had, um, I had been in charge. I had been a boss for a long time and was looking forward to really not being one. Uh, so that was really the issue that she was persuading me um, that, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't uh, walk away from an opportunity like this just because, you know, I had sort of been there, done that. Um, and that I could contribute something to, to Eagleton. And, and so, um, so that was really the discussion that we, that we uh, undertook. And, um, and she had a way of wearing you down. <laughs> you know, you know she's very persistent when she saw something that she thought was the right thing. Um, she, she was um, not someone who took, who took a no for an answer. <laughs> now in your position, how will you be honoring her legacy? Well, actually, we're something, you know, we, we honor her legacy uh, every day by the work we do. And that's the message that I've sort of, uh, you know, um, delivered uh, to our folks. We are going to we are going to do something uh, probably virtually at first, um, but something formal once we're once once the uh, once the pandemic has receded and people can actually meet uh, and and as a group again, uh, we're going to do something uh, more appropriate for for her memory, uh, but we will be just doing we will, we will be doing something uh, virtually in the interim. We're actually going to talk about that today, the various options that we have uh, to honor her memory. But really, um, the the um, the institute itself, you know, the really high quality of the work that we do and the people that um, that call Eagleton home, I think are her are her greatest legacy. I mean, something she's nurtured and developed over 24 years. Um, and they have responded tremendously uh, to the, um, the circumstances under which we have to work. And our work is continuing on all fronts. Uh, and that's really a tribute to the leadership that she, um, um, that she provided and the culture that she instilled over 24 years. Is there any uh, final words you just would like to speak about her? Um, I think, as I say, I think her legacy is one of... Uh, of treating every person um, with dignity and and treating every life as if it mattered greatly to her because it did, and 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 to her I think that was the greatest antidote uh, to what she had experienced, what her parents had experienced, and what the Jewish community in Europe had experienced, uh, and she carried that through in every aspect of her life, uh, including the way in which she ran Eagleton, and and that's. Uh, to me, that's that's the legacy that she leaves, and 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 it's a um, and it's a great one. My thanks to WRSU news reporter Tommy Waters for getting that for us. Coming up, Mandel left a lasting impact on women's role in politics. How has she left her mark? Tommy will be talking with Center of American Women and Politics director Debbie Walsh next. Welcome back to Nightbeat. I'm Joey Block. If you're just tuning in, we've been discussing the latest impacts of the coronavirus on the Rutgers community. We talked to RUCDR founder Dr. Jay Tishfield about it, as well as Eagleton Institute of Politics director John F. Farmer regarding the untimely passing of Ruth B. Mandel. Mandel is remembered as an advocate for more women involvement in politics. WRSU reporter Tommy Waters had the chance to talk with Center for American Women in Politics director 
Debbie Walsh to see how she is doing in the midst of this loss and how Mandel shaped the direction of her line of work. Here's a listen. First of all, let me extend my condolences to both to you. I'm terribly sorry about this loss. Yeah, it's a big one. Uh, Would you mind just going into a little bit of who she was? Sure. Um, So Ruth came to the Center for American Women in Politics um, in 1971, um, thinking that she was she read a little something in the local newspaper about a new center on women in politics that was going to be established at Eagleton. And uh, she thought, oh, well, I'll I'll volunteer. I'm a she was a Ph.D. in English. And she had moved to New Jersey um, with her husband and her young daughter. And she was taking some time to write and to and to uh, spend time with her daughter. And she thought she could do some volunteer work. And the next thing she knew, she ended up um, as the co-director of the center. Um, And it was a path that she followed. Um, It wasn't because she had been a big partisan political person. She had a personal life story um, as a Holocaust survivor, the youngest passenger on the ship, the St. Louis, um, when Mm. her family was fleeing Europe. And uh, that was the ship, the famous Voyage of the Damned, where uh, what happened was the ship was turned away at many ports, including the United States. Uh, but happily for Ruth and her family, um, they ended up in England. Um, many of the people on the St. Louis ended up uh, being back to back to Germany and ended up in uh, in concentration camps and dying. But she and her family were very lucky. Her small part of her family, and they were in England. And out of that experience of being a survivor of the Holocaust and her family um, losing so many members of her family to the Holocaust, she really understood that government is a powerful force uh, that can do very evil things or good things and make a difference in people's lives. And she really became very committed to the idea of making democracy uh, stronger, our democracy stronger, better. Um, And in the early years, it was about bringing more women into the process and making sure that women's voices were heard. And after about uh, a little over two decades of being the director of the center, she went on to become the director of the parent organization of the Center for American Women in Politics, the Eagleton Institute of Politics. And she served there for 24 years, um, right up until uh, last August when she stepped down as the director. So she had really led a life um, that was devoted to the democracy and making it better and making it work. May I ask you, would you have any fond memories of her? Any personal anecdotes you would like to share? I have lots of fond memories of her. She and I worked together for almost 40 years. Um, We got to do some extraordinary things together. We made a documentary film about Uh, women's participation in politics that aired on the PBS series Frontline. Ruth was the executive producer. I was an associate producer. Um, We we used to convene these national forums for women's state legislators that were um, the largest meetings of elected women officials that had ever been held. I think, frankly, the largest meeting of elected women officials ever to be held. Um, And we managed together to create a community of elected women across this country. Um, She was keenly aware of the importance and the value of bringing these women together so that they could create change. Um, She and I got to go to the debate um, between Geraldine Ferraro um, and George Bush senior when um, Geraldine Ferraro was Walter Mondale's uh, running mate. Uh, We went to Philadelphia to see that debate in person. We were on the floor of the Republican convention when Sarah Palin was uh, nominated and gave her speech um, uh, when she was nominated for vice president. And we were on the floor together when Hillary of the Democratic convention, when Hillary Clinton um, accepted the nomination, the first woman to accept the nomination for president of the United States. 
so we saw a lot of firsts. And one of my one of my sadnesses, there's so many sadnesses in this moment, but one of them is that she did not get to live and to see the first woman elected president of the United States, which I know is one of those milestones that um, we would have enjoyed marking together. Now, you, you keep mentioning how like great, how phenomenal she was. She has this incredible resume to her name. But what did she mean to you on like a personal level? Well, she was a friend, uh, an incredibly close friend and a mentor. Um, I really grew up with her. I mean, I started working with Ruth when I was 23 years old. Um, and it is 22 years old, actually. And so I feel like I grew up with her. I feel like um, I lost my mother when I was when I was only 28. Um and Ruth became sort of the one of the most significant people in my life, um, helping shape shape me professionally, but also personally. Um, you know, she was there for me for every major event in my life: um, a marriage, a divorce, a remarriage, my the birth of my children. Um, you know, she was always there for me, um, and she. And that's who she was. I mean, once you were in her circle and in her world, um, she didn't let you go. Uh, and you were sort of in her orbit forever. And she was, you know, tremendously loyal, tremendously committed to the people who were her family and friends. And she created family um, out of, uh, you know, it wasn't just the people that were family by blood it was the family by choice and she had a circle like that um and that made her a very you know and that again i think comes from having a very small circle um of immediate family in large part because of the holocaust but uh she created family she created that community and um i feel very 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 lucky to have been part of it and to have had her in my life for those 40 years i'm angry that it it feels like it was cut short too soon. And I'm angry at coronavirus for having it happen in a moment when mm. we have to experience this loss. All of us who cared so much about her, loved her so much, uh, have to experience this loss in, in isolation, really. Um, you know, finding ways to come together virtually, by phone, through, through you know, Zoom and WebEx. But it's not the same, uh, but I'm very, very lucky that I had her in my life for as long as I did. Will uh, Eagleton and and your college be holding some type of online? Yeah, we're uh, in the middle. We're in the beginning stages now of thinking through how best to do something like that. You know, we had thought maybe it would be something after, you know, at a moment when people can gather together, but that feels like mm -hmm. a very long time off these days, uh, given what yeah. we're hearing. So I think we are going to have to go to some virtual way of doing this. And we're, we're in the beginning stages of trying to figure out what, what that will look like. You know, she had a very wide no. circle of people who admired her. I've been really struck by the emails that have been coming into my inbox since we announced this. Um, you know, the governor has, reached out to her family, mentioned Ruth in one of his briefings this week, in fact. And we've heard from Senator Menendez and um, Ambassador Clinton. And, you know, the, it's, a, it's a large group, uh, a, wide, a wide circle um, of people from all the different aspects of her life. You know, she had her whole life at Eagleton and at COP and at Rutgers. She also was on the board of the National Holocaust Memorial. Um, and that's a whole nother universe of people who are very, feel very connected to her. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a big hole um, in a lot of people's lives. Thank you. Thank you so much for speaking. I really do appreciate it. One last sure. question. Um, in your position, how, what will you be doing to both honor and further her legacy? Well, I think, 
I think in the immediate continuing to do the work that we do. I mean, I think there's nothing that would yeah. honor her legacy more um, than the center growing and thriving and continuing to make a difference, um, continuing to do the work we do to encourage more women to participate, to do the research about women's political participation, uh, to be the voice. I know she was tremendously proud of the center and all that it accomplished. And we have an extraordinary staff of people who want nothing more now than to carry on this legacy and make sure that uh, we do our part to make sure that the democracy is better. And we believe that having more women in the process at every level um, is what will make the democracy better. Thank you so much for taking this time to speak with us. We really do appreciate it. Okay, well, thank you. And thank you for for doing this. I'm, I'm always, I'm very, very happy, uh, to have, uh, to have her legacy remembered in, in every possible way. So thank you. My thanks to WRSU news reporter, Tommy Waters, for getting some firsthand knowledge as to what Ruth B. Mandel will be leaving behind. Coming up next, WRSU news reporter, Chris Sakonis will be discussing how the current job market is being impacted with Rutgers careers, communities, and transitions director, David Bills, and what he thinks students need to do to navigate it. That's right here on WRSU FM, New Brunswick. Welcome back to Night Beat. I'm Chris Akonis. One of the biggest impacts that the coronavirus pandemic has had is on the job market. Last week, the number of jobs lost since the virus began to spread increased to over 16 million, with entire industries being told to shut down by state governments. And all that uncertainty has left students in a difficult situation. Many have lost their summer internships or jobs and are scrambling to figure out what comes next. Here now to provide us with some insight on the university's response is David Bills, the Director of Career Communities and Transitions at the Department of Career Exploration and Success. So how is the Department of Career Exploration adjusting to the challenges of the coronavirus pandemic and all the effects that we're seeing on the job market? So like many of, uh, if not all, Rutgers departments, and we were, we've gone uh, virtual. And um, so the services that we usually offer um, are still being offered. So appointments with a career advisor are uh, done through WebEx. Um, workshops are being done through WebEx. Um, we have... So you know, we have employer events that have, you know, we're like uh, on campus interviewing when employers come to campus. Those are um, our virtual um, information sessions when employers come in and talk about their organizations. Those are virtual as well. Uh, career fair had to get uh, canceled, but but there are there was actually today it was a a Big Ten virtual career fair. Um, that we were involved in and Rutgers students were, were involved in. So really everything, you know, some, some things are different, like the upcoming workshops on, um, on the current job search situation, um, which is, you know, a pretty challenging thing. And, um, and so that's something that we're, we're, you know, we're also doing, trying to, um, to learn what's, what's happening. A lot of discussions with employers, about their interns for the summer that they've offered uh, internships to about um, about job offers that they may or may not make. So we're you know we're trying to collect all this information and, and these workshops we'll, we'll talk about them. But... Can you give me an idea of what these workshops look like? Well, whether it's appointments or, or workshops, it's a Rutgers handshake is the, the system that's a that's available for all students. Um, for RSVPing to, to workshops, to scheduling a, a appointments, to, to um, setting up on-campus interviews. So it's really, it's, it's the platform that students will use. So, so if, when you go to our website, you can see a listing of the upcoming workshops. If you um, go into your Handshake account, you can, um, you can see the workshops listed there as well. And, and through Handshake is how you, you'd reserve a spot for the workshop. And... Um, and then once, once you're, um, there'll be the, the way it's set up now is that 
there'll be a confirmation sent to the students with the with the WebEx information to um, to, to log into the workshop, and then um, the the day of. Um, you know, I don't know how granular you want this, but you know, we we'll use PowerPoints, and um, there'll be a couple of us presenting at this at the um, the COVID nineteen you know job search booster uh, workshops. The first one is uh, is April twenty second, and um, and students will be able to ask questions there if they have any as well. So, um, yeah, did that answer your question? What are employers doing to adapt to the situation? You know, ma many of them are, are trying to keep things as, as they were. I mean, if they had interns hired, they're, they're trying to keep them that way, you know, employed, um, say, for, for the summer. I mean, some, some of them, though, are going vir to, to virtual internships. So that should be interesting to see how that, how that works. I mean, we don't know, you know. <laughs> um, that's, some, that's something new. Um, but, um, but there are some employers that have rescinded offers. And um, so that that could be for an internship or for a full time job. And so that that's something that's that's happening. And, um, you know, and I think that there's that we're also going to see that's what's happening now. So we're, we're getting notices that that students are losing their um, their summer internships. So it's a fairly common occurrence for us to, to hear that. Um, but, um, you know, I think that the hiring overall is going to um, be something to look at even, you know, after, after we get through this initial period, um, you know, you're, you're hearing things I'm sure about, about layoffs and, um, the economy, um, not being in the best shape. So, so that, that will, um, likely have repercussions for, for students in their job search and internship search. Um, but right now we're kind of in the world of trying to figure out what's going on, how, how best to advise students and, um, and talking to students who have had offers rescinded. For students who have lost job or internship offers due to the pandemic, what do they need to do to adapt and set themselves up for success? I mean, the job search has it regularly is, is kind of an uncomfortable process for many students, um, you know, but I think what we're trying to do is, and, and which we do any, anytime we meet with a student, is kind of figure out what they're thinking and, and what their, you know, what, what their ideas are. And, you know, some might have the attitude that, well, you know, a lot of students are losing their internships right now. And um, so it might just be a, no, a, you know, kind of a normal thing um, and might not be that, that concerned about it or might have been worried about working in, at an internship this summer with the state of things. So, so there, there could, you know, there could be some subset with, with relief and we're, we're, you know, seeing, we're seeing that. Um, but with, with others, <clears throat> there's a lot of, um, I think just kind of processing that, you know, um, the loss of the internship and we work with them, we work with the students through that process and then helping them to kind of regroup, um, talk about what their target internships or jobs um were and the discussion might go to well what you know what what else might you be looking at at, at this point and kind of expanding options which which we always do i just think it's more critical to do that now you know what other options um might might you consider and um you know and if it's for jobs and the job market is tough um there's a reality i mean it's nice to than we all want. We all go to college to get, you know, or, or most of us, I should say, you know, to get career type jobs. But th there's the, the element of salary and paying bills and that, that kind of thing. So sometimes we will focus on that kind of gauging the student situation and just you might just need to take a stopgap you know, position to earn, to earn an income. And what kinds of things are you willing to, to take? You know, and one, one thing just kind of coming out of college if you're a graduating senior and if you're, you know, it's a, it's a pretty bad time. I think we all know to, to be looking for, for work among other things. It's, you know, um, just challenging all, all around, but, but, you know, this job markets go through these cycles. And so in a couple of years, things will, you know, will probably uh, turn around. Um, that seems like a long time when you're graduating college, but, um, 
but it's, you know, in, in the life of a career, it's really not that long. So, so we kind of talk to students about that, that you might just need to, to expand your options and, um, for now and, um, and, you know, and then in, in a year or two, maybe, you know, revert back to what you were originally looking for if, you, if you're unable to get that immediately. Are contingencies being put in place for job events beyond the spring? Whew, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, we, we're talking, um, you know, about what we're going to do in the fall. Um, and we don't know. I mean, we're planning our, our workshops and our advising services and our employer events, career fairs, um, you know, as, as in-person events, but also as possibly virtual. Um, because, you know, we, we, you know, we, you know, of course, none of us know. What, what's going to happen. We don't know how people are going to be comfortable being in, in a large group setting for a long time. Um, if the virus comes back in the fall is, you know, the flu season starts again. Um, so, so, you know, we're, we're, we're just kind of trying to plan for, for everything. So we're kind of simultaneously looking at both, at both options. And um, I mean, I think the repercussions will kind of go the, the, you know, the job market's probably going to be challenging for a bit. Um, there are some segments of the market where, you know, healthcare, for instance, you know, where there, there could be some, some opportunities, but, um, but, you know, I think there's going to be some other changes too. I think, you know, more, the, you know, a higher view, which is for on um, virtual interviews that a lot of employers are using. Um, and we were, it was going in that direction anyway, but, I, you know, I think there might, might be more, virtual interviews as employers are getting more, you know, we're all getting more comfortable um, with virtual meetings and things like that. So, so I think there'll be repercussions in that way as well. Kind of speed that process up going to the virtual interviews. Thanks, David. That was David Bills, the director of career communities and transitions at the department of career exploration and success. Thanks Chris for getting some insight into how the job market is being rattled by this crisis. That about wraps it up for me tonight. Thank you to all of our guests, as well as Hannah Varkey and Tommy Waters, for getting those interviews for us. If you ever miss out on one of our shows, you can check it out on our website at wrsu.org and follow us on Twitter at WRSU News for the latest updates. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Joy Block, and this has been Nightbeat. Coming up, it's more WRSU music programming here on WRSU FM, New Brunswick.